Hello, and welcome to Literacy Landscapes. I'm your host and creator, Johanna. On Literacy Landscapes, we re-examine literacy theory and watch it in action today. We'll give you an inside look into the classroom and take you outside to where play and practice meet. Have you ever thought about the connection between math and literature? Dr. Sarah Hart has just recently released a book, Once Upon a Prime, The Wondrous Connections Between Mathematics and Literature. This book is absolutely fantastic. Go out and get it. If you write your own example of a form of poem proposed in this book, Fano Fiction, and want me to highlight it in my blog or on this podcast, email me. Hello, I am so delighted to introduce our guest for today. Dr. Sarah Hart is a Gresham Professor of Geometry and a Mathematics Professor at the University of London, Birkbeck, and has just recently published a phenomenal book. I cannot wait for us to discuss Once Upon a Prime, uh, which is phenomenal. I love the idea of the intersection of mathematics and literature. So welcome. (laughs) So delighted to have you on. Thank you. It's really lovely to be here, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing. Um, What would you like, before we get started, what would you like the audience to know about you? So I'm based in London. I'm a mathematician kind of by training and I'm a professor of mathematics, but I have always been a lover of reading. Since I was a tiny child, I would read anything and everything. And that love of reading has taken me on some really interesting journeys. And it's so great. And I've had such joy in putting together these two things that I that I really want to get into mathematics and literature in this book, which has been such a, a, a wonderful, exciting thing to work on. I I'm smiling ear to ear because I, I almost had like uh, the reverse. I was a British literature major in college uh-huh. and I was the student who in high school was told instead of taking like calculus, how about take creative writing? Um, but um, interestingly enough, my dissertation actually involved mathematics. I did a linguistic uh, content Excellent. analysis of a mathematics curricula, right? So it's so funny because for me, when I saw this book coming out, I, I thought, oh my my goodness, I also, I have this joy of, of ma- yeah. I really, really embraced mathematics. And to see the two together um, is really, really exciting. And your book is enjoyable. I could tell that you enjoyed writing it. So can you yeah. kind of tell us a little bit about your inspiration before we get get started? Do you have any childhood books? I always ask this of my guests. Do you have like one yeah. of uh, a book that you really draw upon for inspiration from your childhood or now? So I think when I was a little kid, I loved escaping into imaginary worlds and Of course, we all have fairy tales and folk tales when we're small, but the kind of books that I really delved into and enjoyed were those ones where people would experience a world that was different in some way. So I read all the books of fairy tales I could get my hands on, but then related to that, uh, adventures where there might be people who were different or there might be secret things you could find so the secret garden was a big favorite of mine where there's something there's a place they go into it's <laughs> magical you know the, these these hidden worlds and places where children kind of have this power of imagination and the stories and books that explore that 
you know, you, you, your mind is open. And so you can see the things that aren't there that the adults are missing out on. So there was a series of books called, um, well, it was about the borrowers. I don't know if you are familiar with that. Mary Norton was this yes. author. <laughs> yeah. And, and I loved, I had all of those books and it's about this little family of uh, little people called borrowers who in your house, you know, when anything goes missing, when the safety pins go missing or little bits of string, where's that needle? I can't ever find one when I'm looking for it. And it's because there are borrowers living in your house and borrowing these things. And just that that was such a powerful and wonderful idea. And, you know, as, as a child, you yourself, perhaps you feel small and, and you can go and explore hidden worlds. So those kind of books in particular, those books about the borrowers really just captured my imagination. You're, you're making me smile. You know, when I ask this question, I, I like, it brings me back to a very often I hear these titles that I completely forgot about the yeah. borrowers. And I, yeah. I also, I loved it. They would like take the items. I, it just, yeah. it, yes, yes, yes. I'm remembering uh, yeah. it. The creative way, you know, they would put yes. things to use a little, they have match boxes for furniture, exactly. and just, a thimble. Yes. 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 So acorns for cups, all of those just wonderful, <laughs> wonderful yes. things. And I was just transported by this idea of putting things to different uses and things that you may not find important, but they can be, you know, maybe this is going to be an important tool for these little tiny people who might be, if you're very quiet, you yeah. might hear them, you know, so yeah, those those dreamlike worlds you can ex escape into. Yeah, I love it. And yes, and I feel like I have to reread all the books yes. that are recommended by my podcast guests, and I feel <laughs> like I have to write about it. So I feel like that's that's on the horizon. I need <laughs> to reread the borrowers, and I loved the Secret Garden. Also, yeah. I love the idea of having your own little worlds. That that yeah. is just. And I feel this joy for literature throughout your entire book. And that is just like, as someone who loves to read, I really just, I kept turning the pages because, you know, as a literature major, we didn't focus on the math. <laughs> and yes, well, you know, to a degree, right? So like when yeah. we like studied iambic pentameter or, you know, yes, to a degree, but it wasn't really emphasized and I didn't really realize the extent to which, right? Yeah. Um, because the the focus was a little different. Um, so you start us off, you start the book off with like nursery rhymes, right? One, two, buckle my shoe. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we don't realize that we start our children off with the connection between mm -hmm. song and literature and mathematics from the very beginning, yes. right? Yes, absolutely. Just, you know, the earliest things that happen to us, the rhythms, the rhymes, the repetitions, counting rhymes, counting up, counting down. And as little children, you know, children enjoy those repetitive rhythmic counting activities. And, you know, we sing, we sing little rhymes to our children to help them fall asleep and they enjoy those things. And I think as adults, we perhaps like a little bit more sophistication but it boils down to an enjoyment of the same thing those patterns symmetries repetition repetition with a little change that that's a more sophisticated version of of the really visible mathematical ideas of, of, of our early childhood experiences of, of poetry you know the nursery rhymes have more repetition and rhythm and rhyme but as we grow we still enjoy poetry and we still enjoy that the, the experience of an iambic pentameter it might be a line in a Shakespeare play now, but there's still that underlying rhythm right. that we are getting some really deep 
pleasure from, I think, we, you know, maybe not consciously, but those things resonate for us. Yes. Yes. And I, I love that. And, and you emphasize, or you, you unpack throughout your text, this idea of structure through mathematics, mm -hmm. and you even bring in geometry. Yeah. <laughs> so walk us through your, I, I would love to hear a little bit about kind of like your process of putting this book together, where, where you were, where you started and kind of where it ended up, right? Talking about structure a little bit. I'd love to hear your thinking process <laughs> about that. Yeah. So when I was first thinking about is there a book here? You know, what what would I say if I want to talk about these links? And there are two two parts at least to, that we can talk about. But one of them is structure, and that's something that I feel so strongly underlies so much of our creative output. And it's because we, as human beings, we have this innate appreciation for structure and pattern and symmetry and those lovely things and it comes out in music and we can you know it's there rhythms and and counting all over the place in music uh, and in art it's there you know we like symmetrical designs if you think about islamic uh tiling patterns and things you know it's just so so visible in art yes but yes. so but literature is the place we don't tend to talk about mm -hmm. structure being present uh and and even you know we might even if we ask ourselves about it, we might not even think that structure relates to something like, you know, a novel. Maybe we we might be able to say, OK, in poetry, I can see that, they're, you know, rhyme schemes and things. So you can make that case. And I open with that case in the book because it's sort of the, the first place we might look for structures in poetry. And of course, it's there. But it's so much more than that. It goes all throughout literature, you know. If Ulysses by James Joyce has structure, you know, then 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 everything has structure. So yes. uh, that is the case I'm trying to make that it's it's not about a, one kind of writing or one kind of literature. It really underlies so much of what we're doing, and and we kind of can't help ourselves as human beings. I think we are we are creatures who enjoy patterns, and so they're just going to come out in our writing, for sure. Yeah. Yes, and and I do agree with you as having been a literature teacher and a teaching. Um, I taught when I first started teaching. I, I taught in a, a very underserved community where I had struggling readers and writers, and where the idea of reading Shakespeare or of writing poetry was really daunting. And I was really, it was a really joyful experience for them to realize they can write a haiku. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was, I remember, you know, we did Kobayashi Isa, we did some famous, you know, haikus. And then I said, now you do it. And, yeah. and they looked at me and I was like, no, 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 you can do it. Let's talk about the syllables, right? Let's work through this. Yeah. And there was a joy that they had not experienced in an English class in a really long time, right? That I, oh. I saw in them because they felt an accomplishment. Um, so I agree with you that structure is can be very beneficial. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it just, it really, it helps to focus the thinking. It helps you to turn something from that might be mundane into something beautiful because you are giving it just that that shape, that structure that that can elevate it to the next level. So that's, yeah, it's so great if the students are writing haiku. And yeah, I mean, we can explore different ideas and, you know, what, what mathematics can do is yeah. 
suggest potential constraints or rules or structures and then you know within that you can play so I'm all about play <laughs> you know yes. exploring and having fun within within a setup so you make you set up the rules of the game and then you play the game and within that you can produce some lovely things and that's true in mathematics as well as in literature so yeah it's 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 about having fun and exploring I love that. And you really um, took, I, I felt that you you definitely tip your hat to Keno and Olipo. Can you, mm -hmm. can you walk the audience through a little bit about, you, you really delve into their work. So yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit. So the Olipo uh, are a group of mainly French writers, uh, mathematicians, and, and you know everything in between, uh, who were formed in the 1960s. And Olipo, uh, it comes from the phrase, Ouvoir de littérature potentielle, which means workshop of potential literature. So they kind of explored potential new literary forms and what could be achieved within them. So there are many, many examples of their work. Perhaps the most famous is uh, Georges Perec's novel, uh, which the English translation is A Void or La Disparition in French. And it's a novel written entirely without using the letter E which is a that's you know quite some constraint <laughs> yes, and an <laughs> because, accomplishment <laughs> yeah because the letter e is is in english and in french as well it's the most commonly used letter so if you've got to avoid using it that that requires you know you to be very careful about your choice of words but i think th this novel is famous yes it's a kind of a it's an intellectual achievement but it's more than that and i think that's one of the questions we have to ask ourselves if we if we design a new structure if we if we think about putting you know some rules in place that's that's an interesting experiment but when it becomes art is when you use that and you, you've got a really good reason for doing it or you're expressing some some thought or some idea using that constraint and strengthening your ideas by the by the force of the constraint and this is what Perec does in in his book La Disparition so it's it's got no letter E in, but that's not for no reason, right? Uh, it, the novel is about loss. It's about a disappearance. That the characters know that there's something that isn't quite right. They're trying to work out, and there are, the, you know, there are little clues in the text yes. for you. So there are things going on that that you realize something is absent. But also Perec, you know, he, he his own name has the letter E in it. He couldn't have written his own name. And more poignantly, in French, you can't write the words for mother and father and family without That's the letter right. E. And, you know, this, this, if you know about his life, he lost his parents during the Second World War. And so there's this absence, this void, kind of in his own lived experience, which makes the book, then that, that brings his extra dimension to it. So he hasn't just sort of whimsically said, I won't use the letter E. Uh, you know, it, there's a reason for it. And it, and it, strengthens what's being said in the book so yeah it, it's that interplay I think you can come up and that's what the Ulipo sort of said we're coming up with potential forms of literature so you can do that now they then once you've got those potential forms then you can choose and decide which ones you are going to use for for the story you want to tell so then that's you know that the art and the literature and the mathematics mix in that way we can pick our constraints and our structures and then we decide how to use them. I love it. And it cre you created your own, <laughs> as you call it, an axiomatic literary form. Yes. The, the fanal fiction. The fanal fiction. <laughs> yes. 
Am I saying it right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. So there was a, a, a mathematician uh, called Fano who described this very, very special kind of geometry. So we think of uh, geometry, it's got lines and it's got points. And in the normal, you know, geometry that you've all experienced, you can draw lots and lots of different lines. And, and if you drew, draw two points, then you can draw a line between them and that kind of thing. Well, there's this really weird kind of geometry called the Fano plane that it's only got seven points in it and it's only got seven lines in it. And there's there's other structure as well. But the, the, the way what I suggest with this, I call it Fano fiction because it's a bit of a pun, you know, from fan fiction. But um it's a very uh, constrained idea. So your only your entire vocabulary is seven words. So that corresponds to the, the points. So points are like words and lines are like sentences. So if so, I followed the structure of this, this mathematical concept, the Fano plane. I said, right, there are only going to be seven words you're allowed to use. And there are going to be seven sentences. And that's the full length of your, your piece of literature. And then the additional structure in this uh, particular geometry, it says that every line contains exactly three points. So every sentence must have three words in it. And every pair of points um, is only in one line. So you've got to make this, you've got to make this story, which consists of seven words, seven sentences. Each sentence has three words and every pair of words could appear in only one, exactly one sentence. So to do that, it's a bit of an intellectual challenge to do it. And what I found so fun in trying to write one of these things is that if you've got to only use seven words and they've got to appear in these short sentences, then you kind of need some words to be able to be both nouns and verbs, because otherwise you don't have enough flexibility. So those those extra requirements really test your your creative powers, but also how flexible you can be with language and and you know whether you can verb a noun, <laughs> then that, that you know that will help you. So yeah, it's it's a kind of fun challenge. And I, I you know I don't know if there's great literature out there to be written, but it's definitely a, a might be a good warm up exercise if you're if you're going to write write something. Try and write a piece of Fado fiction. I tried working on it and I don't think now that you like explained it verbally to me, because I'm very much a combination of visual and verbal. I don't yeah. know if I did it right. I don't well, think I did. There's no, there's no, there's no, you might have invented an alternative variant. I don't think I followed the you geometric might call rules. It, <laughs> we might call it Tramontano fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, given that I had my doctoral convocation yesterday, mine is titled, uh, well, I don't have a title. So here it goes. I'm a little shy okay. about reading it to no, you. No, no, go for it. There's a lot of repetition somehow, but dissertation thesis complete. Hey. Hard work, celebrate. Done, complete thesis. Hard thesis, celebrate. Work thesis, complete. Celebrate work done. Thesis, hard work. That's where uh, I'm at. <laughs> That's great. It's not quite there. Is, yeah, yeah, I like it. It's yeah. a work in progress. <laughs> so work, you know, and work there, you you can be a noun and a verb. So that's yeah. good. You, Yeah, I like it. And of course, I'll work on it. Yes, when you have a diagram, you yep. know, you can you can write the words onto the diagram. Yeah. Oh, look, excellent. That's look exactly, that. yeah. I got to rework yes. the lines. I'll, I promise great. I'll revise it. <laughs> yes, I expect it on my desk by Monday. <laughs>
I didn't follow the order correctly. All right. I did. I started with the diagram, but it didn't. Mm -mm. I'll rework it. <laughs> I love it. You wrote a great one. I, I, you know what? I was going to read it out loud, but people are just going to have to read your book so that they can read your fantastic fan fiction <laughs> because it, it had, it followed the rules. It has a zest. It's great. So people are just going to have to Thank buy your you. book. Right. And I'm well, going to, there we go. I'm going to link the book in my show notes and make sure that I, you know, that people can access it easily. It's available pretty much Thank everywhere. You. I was able to download it onto my Kindle quite easily yeah. and enjoy it. It is just a, a joy to read. And you, you talk not just about the syntax and the mm. organization of words on a sentence level, but you also talk about it as plot structure. Do you want to just give yeah. us a glimmer about that? Yeah. So once you've moved kind of beyond the the structure of the words themselves there are ways in which it can impinge upon the plot but also on the kind of the design of the the narrative so we could talk about the luminaries at this point or is that I'm not sure whether you do you mean like a different <laughs> the, it's totally up to you how you want to I know you reference um Vonnegut's um speech you talk about different for, I mean I, you know people are going to have to read this book but you know you talk about like the ways in which plot structure has been visualized graphically right yes. yeah yeah so there's this brilliant uh lecture that Kurt Vonnegut gave um about 15 years ago uh in which he talked about the concept of the graph of a story and and that is a really compelling idea so the the image in your mind might be he gave the example of for example a boy meets girl so this is you know a man who goes along and he's happy and then so if you imagine the graph you know of this story as time goes along we are going to graph the happiness of the protagonist right so he's all right he's fine and then he meets this girl and he falls in love and his happiness goes up so you can imagine the graph going up but then there's going to be some setback, of course. That's what makes an interesting story. So then he becomes very unhappy and the graph zooms down. And then, and then of course, matters resolve themselves and everyone lives happily ever after. So you've got this sort of image of a graph going up and then down and then coming back to normal. Whereas in something like Cinderella, you know, she starts off very unhappy. And then, and then oh, wonderful. She gets yes. to go to the ball. Oh, but then she's plunged into misery again. And, and then, and then, you know, Again, it all ends very, very happily for her. So we see this sort of from misery to happiness and up and down. <laughs> then he gave this other example of uh, Kafka's metamorphosis, which, which yes. is very amusing because um, so he, Gregor Samsa, uh, begins quite unhappy. And then unfortunately, his, li his life goes downhill from there when he wakes up one morning, he's transformed into a giant vermin, some horrible beetle, and, and his happiness descends to minus infinity on the graph. So, you know, that's Kafka for you. <laughs> but this idea that you can you can plot the narrative, kind of have a geometry of, of the story and, and how the narrative is proceeding, that's a very compelling idea. And, and we look at other ways in which you might be able to do this. So another idea to, to think about, you know, a geometry of a story is the layers of the narrative. So if you think about you begin a story and then within that story, there's some some narrative contained within it. 
a kind of a frame a frame tale sort of thing that's happening yeah. um so that happens you know in a few of Shakespeare's plays where there's a play within a play it happens in Midsummer Night's Dream exactly yes yeah and and in Hamlet as well so you've got this kind of uh, a story within a story and you can think about that as adding a dimension to what's going on so you've got your Pyramus and Thisbe you know there they yes. are and then outside of that you go up another dimension and then you've got the, the onlookers of that play who are watching but of course what we all know as well is there's a third dimension which is us the audience of Midsummer Night's Dream who are watching the people in the play watching the play and so you've got this lovely multiple dimensions that's going on and so that's I think a beautiful way to think about you know narrative as as geometry and multiple dimensions. I have to be honest I feel like I may have been more successful in mathematics if it were presented in this way to me in high school. Um, it makes sense the way you explain yeah, yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is something, it's such a shame that mathematics is, it's it's put in, well, yeah. mathematics has this curse that it's useful, <laughs> right? If you know what yes. I mean. It's so important to science because the universe, just like our minds, uh, is full of structure and pattern and all of these wonderful things. And right. so mathematics is a, you know, a vital tool. It's the way we have to understand structure. And so, of course, it's absolutely important for science. And we couldn't do science without mathematics. And because of that, I think it's been mathematics has been kind of, I don't know, grabbed, <laughs> grabbed by science. And that's what it's being sold as you know, that you have to do this technical stuff to be yes. able to then go on and do science things. And that, although that's true, I think what we really miss then is the, the creative aspects and the joyous aspects of exploring and playing with the mathematics and seeing it in the things we love, seeing it in art, playing with the symmetries, seeing it in literature and in poems and, and even numbers in fairy tales, seeing those things and playing with them and exploring them like we do with music. You know, we don't we don't say That's to people, right. you know, you, you can't sing a song until you've learned how to write down all the, you know, the rests and the, you know, exactly. half notes and quarter notes. We don't make them study theory for 10 years before they before they can sing a song. But it seems like sometimes with the mathematics, we kind of do a bit. We say you've got to learn all your times tables before yes. you can play with geometry. And I feel like actually, yes, you, you do need times tables, but you could do that once you've shown everybody how lovely mathematics yes. is then they want to do it you know if you want to be a pianist you're willing to learn those practice your scales because you want to make the beautiful music because you've heard the beautiful piano music but maybe right. we, we haven't heard the beautiful mathematics music and so yes. then why would we want to do it you know why, why are we solving a quadratic equation we don't know we don't care but but perhaps right. if we see the beauty of it first then we would want to we'd be motivated so I think there's a missed opportunity somehow, uh, yeah, which would be good to fix. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. And while my dissertation studies focused on disciplinary literacy, so the ways in which scientists and mathemati mathematicians write um, and speak and, and, you know, the discourses, I have to say that, you know, having worked in schools for 20 plus years, we also tend to teach these subjects in silos and mm -hmm. very distinct from one another. But we know that in the world, that's not how we live. Yeah, and yeah. I, what I really love is that your book embraces that concept that, you know, there, there is a, 
an interplay between the the genres between the worlds of uh, you know of all of the, the content areas right yeah yeah it's it's really so I was uh talking the other day I went to pick up my daughter from her friend's house and we went in and, and it's a beautiful house and I said to the to, to the mum oh you know this is what a beautiful lovely house and she said oh well I'm an interior designer and I was just admiring she's got these wonderful hexagonal tilings in her kitchen and she's got this you know little uh, side table in it in, you know lots of geometrical shapes and I was saying oh you you know are you mathematical and, and her response was oh almost like oh no don't don't make me do a you know oh I was terrible at, at school at oh, mathematics no. kind of thing she had the fear and I thought that's such a shame because I could see in the way she had uh, decorated her beautiful house that she clearly has a geometrical eye. She clearly likes ah, geometry. Yes. She finds it beautiful. And she didn't, you know, she had she had no, it was obvious to me that there's mm. there's a skill there and an aptitude and an enjoyment of geometry. But she just had never, she did not think of herself as mathematical and I think you know that's such a shame and she's been you know she's sort of chosen art in some way but that you don't have to make that choice and I would love for people to to, to feel that they don't have to make that choice I love that. I love that you saw that in, in like, right, math is in our entire world. And I yeah. also, I was a struggling math student. I originally, I was born in France um, and came to the States when I was a, a, a baby, but um, I was speaking French at home, learning Hebrew in school mm -hmm. and English. And I felt that math was, it's almost like another language, right? And I struggled mm -hmm. in all areas for a long time, yeah, uh, <laughs> including math. Um, and yet I find myself now as an adult, I really love working with data and numbers mm -hmm. and I love da data visualization and I find a joy in it, which is like really weird. Cause if you told me that in like <laughs> 10th grade, I yeah, wouldn't yeah. know what you're talking about, but like, I really like, I'm going to do some data analysis today. I'm like looking forward to it. I don't know. And I have to say, I, as a Gresham professor of geometry, I, loved I geeked out a little bit while I was preparing for this interview and watched your lecture on on like the the geometry on mathematical symbols and uh, the language yeah. of mathematics um and I will link that in the show notes as well okay. but there is there's such a beauty to the fact that there's a well a, a, if you want to just give the audience like a a sound bite about it I will definitely link it but I just really enjoyed the there's a universal there's there's an aspect of these symbols that unites us in a way um yeah, do you want to speak yeah. to that yes yeah, so I think you know when we when we're writing down mathematics we don't often think about each of these symbols that we're using, whether it's the number symbols or something like the equal sign, the origin and the development of those symbols is a fascinating story because they come from all over the world. You know, you've got the, the numerals that we use, one, two, three, four, those symbols come from kind of Indian, Persian, Arabic mathematics, and they, they traveled across into Europe, into Italy um, via a mathematician called Fibonacci. And he brought them to Europe. And so we, we kind of adopted these symbols and we adopted them because they work well. You know, there's there's not this kind of, it's very pragmatic. This the, These re really work well. They're better than Roman numerals for doing calculations with. So those come from kind of the Indian subcontinent. And then the plus sign um, comes from, it, it was used plus and minus signs were used for marking uh, uh, 
shipping containers in German warehouses and they get adopted. The equal sign was uh, first used in a, in a published book by a Welshman called Robert Record. And it, I just love that the equal sign. So we just never even sort of think about it as something that right. was invented. But it was, in, you know, it, it was invented. And so Robert Record, when he put it in his book, he said, well, you know, we, we use this sign because two parallel lines can't be anything. There's nothing more equal than two parallel lines. And so that's why the equal sign. That's the reason for it. And then it's in this book of his, it's the first equation. And you could, you know, you could look up what's the first ever equation and solve it. So in in a little expression, that, you know, a simple equation that you might write, it's got numbers from India and it's got, you know, a, a sign that was first used by a Welshman. And then big things, other things were used by, by you know, German uh, dock workers in warehouses. So the whole history of mathematics is there with humans doing it. You know, and I love that. So mathematics itself, you know, it yes, it transmits eternal truths, but the language yeah. and the symbols are are so human, and they they tell the story of our whole civilization. The whole of humanity contributes to to the symbols we use every day. It's just beautiful. I am just so inspired talking to you. I have to be honest. Oh. <laughs> Your love of mathematics and literature, just, it it's just, I mean, I'm just like beaming with joy. <laughs> um, it's really inspirational. And I, you know, I recommend anyone, I recommend everyone read your book, to be honest. It's, in, it's like an enjoyable read. I think everyone can see, um, can relate to it, can connect with it. Um, and it's just, it's a phenomenal text. So I want to just thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thank you. It's been so lovely to talk with you. And, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I, I can't help but be enthusiastic because it's all so exciting to me, you know, and I love yeah. talking about these things with, with, with people. So yeah, it's been great. Oh, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Literacy Landscapes podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks so much to my son, Max, and his amazing teacher, James, for the theme song you're listening to today. Be well.